What's a Global North-founded influencing NGO to do to stay relevant, credible, and effective? And should influencing NGOs see power as an infinite resource, unlimited in nature, or as a limited asset that needs to be fought for? Finally, how does a seasoned advocacy leader look upon the current moment as a combination of crisis and opportunity? I discussed these topics during a wide-ranging interview with Paul O'Brien, Vice President of Policy and Advocacy at Oxfam America, who just published the book, Power Switch. Join us. Hello, and welcome to NGO Soul and Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye. My name is Tosca Bruno van Vijfijken, and I'm the founder and principal consultant at Five Oaks Consulting. I have over three decades of experience helping leaders in civil society and philanthropic organizations manage change, invest in cutting-edge leadership development, lead organizational culture change, and strengthen organizational effectiveness. If you are in an international civil society leadership position, or are aspiring to grow towards that, this podcast is for you. Good day, everybody. This is Tosca at NGO Soul and Strategy. Today, I'm talking with Paul O'Brien. He's the Vice President for Policy and Advocacy at Oxfam America. And this podcast episode is part of a series on campaigning NGOs. Now, Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Tosca. Yeah, this is going to be so fun. I know it. Um, Paul, let me just quickly mention, of course, that you have a longer background in Oxfam America. You have worked also as its director of aid effectiveness. And I noticed in your bio, something I didn't know is that you have worked for a long time in Afghanistan in in a number of responsibilities. You also worked as a policy advisor in Care International and in other roles there as well, and you graduated from the Harvard Law School. Now, Paul and I, we know each other. How do we know each other? Because I invited you to come and contribute to the Transnational NGO Leadership Institute, right, a number of years ago. And you did a really good, uh, had a really good day with us in presenting to our leaders there. And last year, in 2019, you and I worked together a little bit once I transitioned into consulting on an exploratory project that was called The Future of um, Northern Influencing NGOs. And in this conversation, I'm going to turn some of the uh, propositions that you put out in, a, in a, uh, an early version of a concept note for that project, turn them into questions to yourself. So here we go. Sounds totally unfair. (laughs) We'll see. I'm not necessarily that brutal. Um, So this whole premise of having to question to what extent there is a future for Global North founded influencing NGOs, as Oxfam calls it, right? Uh, Some organizations um, use the more widely turned campaigning organizations and you should feel free writing your first answer to explain if there's a difference, why does Oxfam call it influencing rather than campaigning, etc. But I want to turn quickly to, I have a sense from that, 
um, from the birth of your project last year that there is some angst about the future, right? So my question to you is why can Global North founded influencing INGOs not continue to do their influencing work the way they have been in the last, let's say, 10 years? Okay. Well, that's a fun one to start with. Uh, I'm got two dilemmas uh, that you sort of raised, and I'm going to share a little anecdote, a story about both of them. The first one, what, what words do we use? Uh, which ones ma matter and resonate most? When I mm. first joined the sort of global leadership team for Oxfam's advocacy efforts, uh, we called ourselves the Global Campaigning Force. Okay. That was probably 2008, 2009, 2010. And uh, now we call ourselves a worldwide influencing network. Right. So is that, is that just a, a Monty Python episode gone wrong where we're just like <laughs> dancing on the head of a pin? I don't, I don't think so. I think, it's, uh, I think it actually, there, there's, a, there's real intent behind each of those words. So worldwide rather than global is because I think global has become a euphemism for northerners who want to tell everybody else what to do. And so <laughs> we say, we've got a global idea. And what that basically means is uh, all you foot soldiers around the world. Um, so, you know, and the pushback on globalization is at some level a pushback on like somebody sitting in a, a little ideal laboratory in Washington or London, deciding how the rest of us should think or be. Right. Um, so worldwide, I think, connotes something that is truly more balanced um, and, and, and it genuinely tries to reflect where the sources of energy and ideas come from. Um, campaigning and force, I think, are two words that I think they just they're both they're really exciting to me. I have to say I like them as All words. Right. But I think if you're trying to build a bigger identity and get more people on board, um, I think there's there's sense in using words like influencing and network. Um, influencing for Oxfam does mean more than campaigning. Um, okay. It means the entire array of tools and approaches that we use to deliver change that isn't simply the transfer of resources. Um, oh, okay. So it includes advocacy. It includes campaigning, but not just. When we do a demonstration project in a country and then we go to the Ministry of Agriculture or Women's Affairs and we say, look, this stuff works and we want to work with you to scale it. We'll work with you on how and we'll address it. That's a, that is an influencing agenda as well mm. uh, because we're not measuring success just on the, what, the, the, the direct impact or resource transfer. We're, we are always looking at how we get to systems change. Network, I think, is at some level uh, a statement of humility um, over force, which is that we want to mm. be part of global movements now and more about being part of it than uh, in charge of it. And that's partly because no one wants us to be in charge of it anymore. <laughs> and it's partly a recognition that if we want to stay relevant, uh, we better show up with humility about that. Got but it. then there's this second part to your question, which is sort of the future. I think all of that is a reflection that we've realized uh, the game of influencing is changing. It is much more about distributed power. And we want, we've recognized that as a transnational NGO or international NGO, we're not going to deliver a lot of change if we're not part of where global movements are, where Southern uh, activism is. 
And so we are trying to be an organization, even though we've historically Northern Roots, that is truly more balanced in that worldwide way. So our headquarters is in Nairobi. A lot of our leadership now is from the South. Uh, when you look at our executive directors and when they come together from around the world, uh, it's it's a much better reflection, I think, of uh, the kind of leadership we want than mm-hmm. I joined 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So that, maybe that's enough. Okay, maybe maybe that sets the scene. And I'm going to uh, probe a little bit more about the extent to which there is angst about the future. I, I heard a little bit of that towards the end in terms of Oxfam um, preparing itself or repositioning itself in order to respond to that, but we're going to look into that. So in your concept note, for instance, uh, last year, you wrote, for instance, about the question as an Oxfam and other examples of influencing NGOs, should we be diminishing our relevance vis-a-vis the next generation of influencers? And you wrote, you know, if we look at some of the new influencing groups organic groups, indigenous groups, networked and virtual, you mentioned already South to South, et cetera. They are um, faster and becoming more effective. Will our types of Global North founded NGOs, um, should we yield the ground to, uh, that we used to cover or should we seek a new place alongside next generation influences? So what is your own answer to that question? Okay, so um, something that I write and think about a lot, often on my own time at the moment, is how we talk about and think about power. Um, mm. And I think it's re- it's an important concept, and I think we confuse ourselves a lot, which is at the foundation of how I want to answer the question you just gave. You know, the word power, we use it in two ways and interchangeably. Um, sometimes what we mean is power as capacity or power as energy. Uh, this this that movie made me feel powerful um uh i i i felt um uh, a sense of power when i engaged in that sense and a lot of that is is really about um something that can be grown and built um mm-hmm. at, at, at the expense to no one another form of power that mm. we talk about is power basically a control over resources or decision making or or an um, uh, something that's finite. When somebody has to decide a particular thing where, you, you know, I have the power to make that choice, not you. Um, uh, how are we going to confront the power of uh, that corporation or this government to affect that okay. change? And when we use that word of power, it's sort of power as control, not capacity. And it's zero sum. Yeah. And uh, we want to be very clear on who has it and who we want to take it from and who we want to give it to, because Mm -hmm. it is a resource that can be taken from one group or actor and given to another. So when you say to me, you know, should we become less powerful in relation to this emerging group of activists? Yeah. I hear it in two ways. One sense is, well, first, I don't think the word should really matters because we're going to be. Uh, (laughs) there, there, There is a group, there's a way of doing activism and movement building now that is much more organic uh, decision-making is much more distributed and it's coming. I mean, you watch what youth is doing all around Africa, Latin America, Asia. They're not sitting around waiting for Oxfam to tell them, here's your marching orders. Right. Um, they're moving. We want to stay relevant to them. So in a way they are taking power that is at some level limited because they're taking the ability of the global publics to listen and engage and saying, listen to us, 
and engage with us. And at some level, they're taking something that is a finite thing, which is the, you know, the energy for a certain type of global activism. People want to put their energy in the right place. And certainly in their own countries, and more increasingly global, new, young, emerging uh, virtual activists are doing that. Yes. It's creating a dilemma for international organizations that uh, do a lot of broadcast campaigning, meaning exactly. here's, here's our hashtag, please join. Uh, and this is how, and this is what we'll tell you to do next. Exactly. So for us, um, do we want to be less relevant to them? No. I mean, the, the fact that they are grabbing that kind of power has made organizations, I think like Oxfam go like, well, how do we stay interesting and useful to this more kind of distributed and dialogue-y uh, and much more organic form of campaigning and organizing. And so we want to be relevant to them. Mm-hmm. And that creates a lot of really interesting dilemmas um, for us because, uh, yes, we're, sometimes they're going to say to us, the best way you can be useful to us is stay out of the way. Yes. And normally when we hear that, we're like, well, is there an option B? (laughs) (laughs) So, because we'd actually like to stay in the game. We'd like to be useful. Could we take a back seat? Could we open the door for you and then maybe not take all the credit? Um, Could we support you in a way that you actually find value added? Um, And so those are the conversations that go on. And sometimes they tell us, Actually, this is a zero-sum moment. It's either you or us, and we'd like it to be us, so go away. Yeah. And sometimes they'll say, actually, it's a power's capacity moment. And if you join with us in the right way, mm-hmm. we can collectively be way more powerful together than we ever were apart. So thanks very much. Yes, you are showing the kind of facilitative, leading from the back leadership that makes us interested to engage with you. And we get both, honestly. Southern activists give us both. They're like, Oxfam, it's like that line from Jerry Maguire. They love us for the organization we almost are. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to actually skirt away from what I thought I wanted to ask you by following up by saying, so this kind of um, leading from the back right in a facilitative way being present where where you actually truly can compliment and after listening truly carefully and not being so concerned about planting your own flag that sounds like a beautiful image but it also requires a lot of changing in organizational systems right and ways of decision making and changing in habits and behaviors right so culture Talk to me about to what extent you think Oxfam America and the broader Oxfam Global Confederation is truly changing itself in order to do more of that complementarity. Well, I am very, this is very convenient, but I am actually really proud of some of the changes that both the family and Oxfam America have made on this front. But I will give you a bit of honesty just to so that you know, people don't completely chew me out. Uh-huh. It's, a, it's a real, it is a real dilemma, because look, if you have a business model that says, um, at at least in large part, our money and our support comes from the fact that we are helping real people on the ground in real time. That's right. By, by providing simple forms of life improvement that we can explain and almost put names on and and tell you how many people we've helped 
and how concretely we've improved their economic well-being or their health care or their education. If you have that business model in all of these international NGOs at some level, if they're not pure advocacy NGOs, they do. Yeah. So they've got to be able to go out and take some credit. In country X, we're working with Y population to deliver Z change. Now, if you take that and you don't recognize that you've got other equities as you say that, what can happen is you then make it very difficult to actually play that kind of backseat leadership, enabling, we're going to be the partner who's flexible type thing because you've got to be able to profile yourself in a way that says we have a massive amount of direct power in that country yes. and resources and followers and people and all that language of the old sort of somewhat charitable uh, version of what it means to be in an INGO. So you call mm -hmm. people beneficiaries without even asking have they truly benefited and so on. So you struggle with that in the INGO world constantly. But as, as we all know, it is now increasingly balanced with this realization that our collective impact on that resource transfer is not as great as it could be if we could also deliver systems change, deeper change, work with partners, shift power dynamics, and so on. So we know for even for our money, for the people mm -hmm. who support us, they want to know that our changes are lasting and that are deeper and that we're getting the most value from every dollar. So we also right. have a real imperative not to be that sort of top-down, um, uh, mm. it's all about us in the country, even from a business model perspective. My own view is that it is a constant balancing thing. I think Oxfam America has done a really good job in our family. So our family, you know, 20 affiliates, um, some of them are known in their publics as sort of classic charities more than others. Some mm -hmm. are known more as sort of really like, they're almost like donors. They find great partners and work through. And yeah. some are known largely for influencing systems change rather than service delivery. I think in the main Oxfam America is known for two things, being a good place to go if there's a humanitarian crisis in terms of direct response and having a, a way that people who support us can feel useful in a moment that they care about. So mm -hmm. in the humanitarian context, being a great responder, but then primarily our programs outside of that, and that's a fairly limited part of our work now, is about delivering systems change and working with partners in countries to deliver influencing impacts. Mm -hmm. um, and it's our whole business model. Like we don't have logisticians in Oxfam America who are doing service delivery anymore. Right. We've got folks who are trained in partnership, in country specificity, and in policy work. So for our business model, we have to be able to go out to our publics and say, this is the best way to deliver impact now um, and, 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 and balance those equities that I was talking about. I see. I see. I'll ask you one more thing from uh, your concept note of last year when we worked together a little bit. How to adapt, you said, when fewer governments want influencing INGOs? <laughs> well, let's, stay, let's, let's be honest. They want us there as long as we're really crap. 
because, <laughs> because if if we can go there and say we're doing civil society strengthening we're fostering dialogue and we're challenging the powers that be but we're not really then yeah. they are absolutely delighted because they have the veil of a rights-based open culture they've got a whole set of international organizations telling stories about how we are are engaging in a strong civic uh, empowerment uh, set of exercises and actually their power is not threatened at all. So they definitely want us there as long as we're useless. Now, when we start working with local movements and groups that are politically relevant, think, think about 2019, okay? Yeah. So I think people have sort of forgotten this, but right before the pandemic, mm-hmm. what we were seeing is in country after country, movements were giving up their confidence in electoral processes and we're getting out on the streets and risking often risking a much even even greater level of violence than we've been seeing in the united states over the last while which a lot of it is racially driven in yeah I, I, and I, I think that's important in the us but if you look around the world if there was something that tied uh protests from chile to brazil to sudan uh to lebanon to iraq to haiti it was inequality and mm-hmm. that was the thing that brought people together. Right. The feeling that their government, their social sectors, their economies were no longer working for them. So whether it was fuel price hikes or hikes in metro fares or, yep. you know, whatever it was in Lebanon, it was phone costs and other things. People were going on the streets. That's what hap- was happening before the pandemic. So okay. you had all these movements that were just giving up faith in politics. Now, autocrats in those contexts do not want, once they remove the lockdowns to go back to that. So they're going to be looking very carefully at international NGOs as to whether we are going to be a relevant part of what is going to be a potentially ugly time for campaigning and particularly for Southern campaigners as they people start moving back onto the streets and their economies have contracted, inequalities have increased because of COVID and people are going to be angry and frustrated in all sorts of ways and it's going to be ugly and, and they're going to be looking hard at who's fomenting uh, activism, what is the role of internationals, and how are they playing. The better ones are going to be ready for that and going to be helping and supporting and be able to survive while governments want to shut us down. The worst ones will say, oh, well, that's surprising. They don't want us doing activism workshops anymore. We should just leave politely and wait till we can go. Yeah. Uh, Ah, oh, that's very interesting. The way you've already kind of looked forward into what you suspect to uh, uh, the, the landscape, if you will, to be, uh, and how that will impact organizations, uh, global north founded ones, uh, influencing ones like yourselves. So let's turn briefly to the question of of what has four years of U.S. internal political quote unquote turmoil changed about this picture and I know this will probably allow you to also segue into your new short book that you're writing at this moment which you just told me before we started recording is about power yeah okay so I have to say live on the podcast now (laughs) nothing I'm about to say represents the official views of Oxfam America okay everybody has heard that (laughs) okay this is my personal view um the absolute failure of this administration and you know yeah nor does i have to say tosca also nor does this mean that oxfam america disagrees profoundly with everything i'm about to say they just they haven't passed any judgment got it um we are we're not a political organization but 
in my view, this administration has failed on so many fronts that the, 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 after four years, there is a real question now as to what's going to happen um, uh, following the elections and following the end of the pandemic and following the sort of the economic health and climate consequences of the failure um, in large part because uh, the Trump administration has made it almost impossible for there to be the kinds of multilateral agreements that we need to fight inequality, to fight climate, to fight migration challenges in responsible and humane ways. Um, we are going to be in a world which is, you know, Rahm Emanuel and Obama said in around 2008, is uh, a massive crisis in which there is also going to be opportunity. I do not think that we have seen a time in my uh, conscious lifetime mm -hmm. where we have a, a better moment to really put together a set of ideas into pour concrete on them in terms of policies, both at the national level in the United States and at the global level, to do a, a serious power switch in our world, a, a healthy kind of power switch in our world. What do you mean and, by a power switch? So what we, I mean, essentially, and this is what I write about in the book, we have seen um, over the last 40 years and frankly on steroids since 2008. So even through the Obama years, and mm -hmm. you know, some of that was the failures of their administration, but some of it was the hand that they were dealt and the economic crisis. Um, we have seen an accumulation of power and money in fewer and fewer hands and a deregulation of the kinds of policies that would make our world healthier, would make economies more inclusive, that would address uh, forms of discri discrimination across gender justice, across race, across sexual identity, and many other forms that has left us mm -hmm. with a massive, and we're, here I'm talking about a zero-sum form of power, where okay. it has been accumulated by a tiny fraction of actors who are living in a completely different space from most of us, and, uh, and certainly most of humanity. Mm -hmm. And we need a power switch. We need to, to, to find uh, ways to remove some of the power that now sits with autocrats and the super wealthy and with billionaires and with corporations uh, and with establishment politicians who think they no longer actually have to be responsive to the real needs of ordinary people. And we need it globally. And it has been very hard to make progress when the United States was so dysfunctional in terms of its own politics and its multilateral engagement. And we are going to be in a moment, I believe, um, maybe regardless of the elections, but certainly if um, uh, the Trump administration is no longer in power and we don't have a never ending constitutional crisis, we're going to be in a moment where there is a lot of space for progressive activism around the world. And activists are stepping up around the world mm -hmm. to, to, to deliver the kind of message and power that will say to politicians who always act in their own self-interests, we have to listen and we have to try something other than incremental change. Because if we don't, we won't, we, we won't satisfy these growing voices uh, and we are not going to get our world back on track. So I think we're in a very important moment between uh, in over the next year, frankly, but certainly mm. in the next six months.
Mm. And that's what your what your short book, as you called it to me, yes. is is going to be about. Well, we'll certainly going to keep our eye out. I wish, Paul, we had had more than the half an hour that today was available to us because there's many, many more things I would have liked to ask you, but we'll have to do that another time. So let me ask you, for people who don't know much about you but want to learn more about you, where should they go? Uh, well, thanks, Tosca. It's been fun to chat. Um, yeah, if you feel like hearing more of this silliness uh, <laughs> or engaging with me, I'm on Twitter at dpauloBrien. Uh, that's, uh, p uh, my last name is spelled O-B-R-I-E-N, um, and I'm on LinkedIn too. So okay. I'm up for folks either agreeing and preferably disagreeing so that we can, <laughs> we can uh, have some dialogue about it. But, uh, and I can tell you from experience, it's very fun to disagree with Paul. <laughs> always great fun, and I, I always uh, learn from it. So we'll put uh, your contact information on Twitter and LinkedIn in the show notes, of course. Um, and uh, we'll also put up your, your uh, profile on the Oxfam America uh, uh, website. So thank you, Paul, for all your insights. Uh, thank you. It was brief, but it was, as always, so stimulating. And thank you, listeners. If you're interested in the future of transnationally operating NGOs, whether they're influencing or not influencing types of NGOs, please do check out our new co-authored book with George Mitchell and Hans-Peter Schmitz. It's called Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs. And as it happens, it has chapters on digital, in for instance, and, and what Paul referenced in terms of the... Um, what what young uh, people around the world are expecting as as forms of engagement with INGOs and how Global North NGOs um, should move beyond the kind of broadcasting approaches towards digital campaigning, and it has uh, chapters also um, about what the impact has been of the fact that NGOs are have the form of charity and the kind of impact that it has uh, uh, and the business models, as Paul was saying, that, uh, that came with that and the kind of negative effects that has now on NGOs in terms of sustaining their relevance and, um, and legitimacy uh, into the future. So check that out. Uh, I have a link on my website. It was just published, the book in July, and it seems to be having some legs so far, which we are grateful for. In the meantime, this is Tosca, and I look forward to spending time with you on NGO Soul and Strategy next time. Thanks for listening to NGO Soul and Strategy. If you want to learn more, have a look at my website, fiveoaksconsulting.org, where you will find posts on topics related to what we discussed today. That's five, as in the number five, oaksconsulting.org. You can also find free white papers there, recordings of interviews with me, as well as information about the upcoming book Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs, of which I'm a co-author, and which will be published in June 2020. Or feel free to email me at tosca at fiveoaksconsulting.org. And follow me on my social media channels, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. And be sure to leave a review on iTunes or any of the places where you get your podcasts so that others can find it too. So, until we talk again, 
This is Tosca at NGO Soul and Strategy, the podcast for leaders who look change right in the eye.